Welcome to Extreme Genes, brought to you by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This week on Extreme Genes Family History Radio, what's with that Y chromosome testing? Hi, it's Fisher, and you remember that's how DNA testing started out, but it's still valuable. And Gretchen Jorgensen from Legacy Tree Genealogists can tell you how it can help you with your research. Plus, we're going to talk to David Rencher, director of the Family History Library in Salt Lake City, Utah. He'll tell you what the staff's been up to during the lockdown and how much we're all going to benefit from it. Plus, Cece Moore on the latest episode in her series, The Genetic Detective. It's a loaded show this week on Extreme Genes, America's Family History Show. Brought to you by FamilySearch.org. Discover. Gather. Connect. A presentation of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Hello, America, and welcome to America's Family History Show, Extreme Genes and ExtremeGenes.com. My name is Fisher. I am your radio root sleuth on the program where we shake your family tree and watch the nuts fall out. Well, we got some great stuff going on today. If you're interested in DNA and particularly DNA that you might not have worked with yet, that is Y DNA. The whole DNA thing actually started with Y DNA probably 20 years ago. It's not used nearly as much, but it serves its purpose in finding your ancestry or discovering the roots of your ancestors. We're going to talk to Gretchen Jorgensen from Legacy Tree genealogists about that a little bit later on in the show. Plus, we're going to talk to David Rencher. He is the head of the Family History Library in Salt Lake City, Utah. What's going on with them and Family Search during the pandemic? And what might we see on the back end of this that's going to actually benefit us from the pandemic? We'll find out from David. Cece Moore is returning to talk about her next episode of The Genetic Detective on Tuesday nights on ABC. And of course, we have David Allen Lambert, who's always just right there in Stoughton, Massachusetts, ready to help us out. Hi, David. How are you? I'd be better if I was in Beantown, but I'll settle it at home. Absolutely. (laughs) Yes. So many people work from home. We're going to talk about one of those stories here in just a minute. David, of course, is the chief genealogist of the New England Historic Genealogical Society and American Ancestors. So, David, where do we start today with our family histoire news? Well, you know, if you had to sit on playing a trivia game with your friends and you said that there was a pensioner of the Civil War, well, until recently, you could have said that was the fact. That is the truth. But now we have lost the last pensioned Civil War child. In fact, Irene Triplett, over 90 years of age, is now gone. Her father, Moses Triplett, started the Civil War with the Confederacy, but defected to the North. We call them galvanized Yankees. And uh, he collected a pension. In fact, he died shortly after attending the 75th of the Gettysburg reunion when Roosevelt went out there. And she spoke in her news article that she really didn't care too much about her mother or her father, her mother being about 30 years younger than her dad. But she had some mental health issues. And because of that, she has been in state institutions for a long time. And she has finally passed after receiving her monthly $73.13 check from the Department of Veterans Affairs. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Absolutely incredible. And, you know, what this really does, David, is it illustrates the cost of war. And Mm -hmm. it's been now 155 years since the end of the Civil War. And to think that anybody was still getting a pension for that is inconceivable. But uh, now that is over, the cost to the taxpayers, going back to what, our second, third, fourth great-grandparents in some cases. Exactly. Exactly. And I mean, the the pensions were given out as early as 1861 after the First Battle of Manassas Bull Run. 
1861, we start to see pensions, number one, number two, and all that. And those are now on fall three. But there'll be a long time before you get to see Irene's pension online because it was active until 2020. Yeah, incredible. <laughs> yeah. You know, smallpox, of course, affected a lot of our ancestors. But a crude smallpox inoculation instigated under the watchful eye of General George Washington may have turned the tide of the war during the Continental Army's inoculations. Isn't that something? He got smallpox visiting Barbados because he had a brother who'd been infected with tuberculosis. So they thought, okay, warm weather, let's go to Barbados. So they sailed to Barbados and Washington gets the smallpox. He gets clobbered with it, wound up with pock marks in his face, learned about inoculations then. And so he was fearful that the American Revolutionary Army was going to get infected with this, and that's how we would lose the war. So they figured out these really crude inoculations for all those who had not had smallpox previously. So many of our ancestors could have had this. And you know, it's the thing about it is that if they didn't have it, how it could have changed the numbers of the Continental Army and changed the whole course of the war? Oh, yeah. Well, speaking of people like presidents, like George Washington, he obviously worked from home, right? Because, yes, he did. Know, That's he, true. He would have, <laughs> would have been at Mount Vernon because there was no White House yet, executive mansion. There's a great article on ExtremeGenes.com. If you go and you can see presidents working from home, and there's a photo gallery, and it talks about presidents from George Washington and John Adams all the way down to the Bushes and Barack Obama. It's, yeah. It's really an interesting story, and I really never stopped to think about it until I saw that story, so thanks for posting it. I love Obama's quote. He says, it's great working above the store. <laughs> well, you know, one of the anniversaries, I think, on a positive side is if we look back to our youth and going on dates, drive-in movies are now celebrating their 87th anniversary, June 6, 1933, when a drive-in movie opened for its first time in Camden, New Jersey, and how it changed history. But it's unfortunate with Redbox and digital video at home streaming, not a lot of people go to the movies because you could watch as many movies as you want from home now. It's not like you had that Saturday evening movie on TV, you know. Well, I, I think for dating, though, we're seeing that uh, drive-in movies are starting to make a little bit of a comeback, and I think you might see more of them opening now as a result of all this. Yeah, that really is kind of COVID-friendly, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> because you really don't want to have your car parked any further away than six feet from the next one because you can't open the door to go get popcorn. Exactly. Oh. Well, with COVID, obviously, we're doing a lot of things remotely. And, of course, this year marks the 400th anniversary of the arrival of the Mayflower in Plymouth Harbor in Massachusetts. And a lot of the celebrations have either been canceled, but many of them actually have been rescheduled virtually, as Plymouth 400 recently announced. Well, I'll tell you, know, you what, I am uh, disappointed in it because I was certainly hoping to be at Plymouth later this year for the celebration. But if we got to do it this way, we've got to. Or maybe we just do some of those physical celebrations next year. Keep our fingers crossed that this gets under control. You know, the first Thanksgiving wasn't until 1621. They didn't have a harvest feast the first December they arrived because they hadn't planted anything yet. So you can look at 1621 as uh, an extension of the 400th anniversary, and I'm sure many people are probably going to do that. It makes me think of turkey and stuffing. Yes. <laughs> All right, David. Thank you so much. And we'll talk to you again at the back end of the show when we get to Ask Us Anything. Thanks, Fish. Always a pleasure to be on the show. I think it was two years ago now where my wife and I made the decision we really have to figure out where her mother's name line came from. We were stuck at third grade grandparents. We couldn't get any further. And we've been working on this for like 30 years. 
So regular autosomal DNA was not coming through. So we made a choice to go with Y chromosome testing on Julie's uncle. And the reason we did this is, of course, because the Y chromosome is only passed down from father to son. So it really follows back on what we hope is going to be the name line. And as a result of that testing on her uncle, we discovered a couple of matches. And both of them descended from this same couple in Pennsylvania. The guy was in the Revolutionary War. And with that information, we were able to discover, yes, this man had a son named Jesse, who we were researching. And then we went back to the autosomal results on both my wife and her mother and her uncle. And between all of them, there were some dozen matches of people who descended from this particular couple. So the Y test came in really well for us. And uh, it's not something we use all the time, but I thought we'd get Gretchen Jorgensen on the line today. She is with the Legacy Tree Genealogists. And uh, Gretchen, the Y test, it kind of started this whole thing and then wound up on the back burner. And it's still valuable once in a while, isn't it? It sure is. Why DNA testing and mitochondrial for a long time were kind of the only game in town. And then when autosomal testing became available in the consumer market, that's kind of where everyone's attention went. And for good reason. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. It's extremely powerful and there's a lot that can be done, but autosomal DNA testing won't take your line back forever. There are limits as to how far you can trace your genealogy. And so I have done a lot of Y-DNA testing with my client research and I'm just finding it to be a really useful tool. Well, for people who are new to genealogy and family history research using genetics, let's just kind of lay the foundation for this, Gretchen. Sure. So family tree DNA has a couple of different types of Y-DNA tests that are available. And by the way, Uh, we should mention they are the only company these days doing Y-testing. There are a couple of smaller companies that are more of a niche market and for really deep, specific types of tests. But, you know, for a starting place, yes, Family Tree DNA is the only game in town. And so their basic test is a YSTR test. STR stands for short tandem repeat. And that's the kind of Y-DNA test that's been available for a lot of years. And... At Family Tree DNA, you can test 37 markers. You can test 111 markers. There are some other options available through upgrades, but if you're purchasing a test, those are the current options. And back when this all started, 37 was probably closer to the high end of what was available. So the number of those markers have increased over time while the price has dropped. And of course, the Uh benefit to that for people who would be considering it is the more markers, the more you can tell the closeness of a relationship with somebody who might match you. Yes. Y37 is kind of the minimum number of markers you need to have matches that are genealogically relevant. There are older 12 and 25 marker tests still floating out there, but a lot of men, especially men with common European haplogroup, will have thousands of Y12 matches, and so that's not helpful. So the more markers you get, you have matches that kind of drop off your list, and the ones that are left standing at that 111 marker level are the ones that tend to be most likely to be your closest relatives of the people that have tested. 
Well, and the thing about why testing, too, is it really goes back thousands of years. It's really hard to put a timeline on it. For people who are familiar with the usual autosomal testing, maybe through Ancestry.com, 23andMe, or the Family Finder test at Family Tree DNA, those can give you a distance to the common ancestor. But a Y test is a lot more difficult to do that with. It is, and that's kind of the advantage and disadvantage all rolled into one. Um, The Y chromosome, because each man only has one copy of it, if he has a son, he passes that copy on essentially intact to his son. There are a few mutations along the way, but those aren't really that common. They don't happen every generation. And so your Y chromosome is probably the same as your dad's and your grandfather's and your great-grandfather's. And so you can get men that are quite a distance from each other that have an identical Y chromosome. Mm -hmm. So if you are searching for a recent ancestor, like if you're looking for your biological father, grandfather, great-grandfather, Y-DNA testing is not the place to start with that because you can't really narrow down the candidates the way that you could with autosomal testing. But if you're looking for a more distant ancestor, you know, third, fourth, fifth, great grandparent, something that is going to be a lot more difficult to do with autosomal testing, then Y testing can work out really well in those cases. Let's talk about the haplogroups for a minute here. A lot of people are into that because it traces the path of their male line ancestor back sometimes thousands of years. Is that beneficial at all in genealogical research? Um, It can be. The base haplogroup by itself is not always so useful. Like if you are a man with European origins and your haplogroup is R-M269, that tells you (laughs) you're in good company with, you know, half of Europe. Right. Um, I've seen that. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Exactly. But sometimes we have some surprises. I have one line of my family that is all German as far as we can trace back. But the men in that line have haplogroup beginning with the letter E, and it's from Northern Africa. So there's a mystery there, which is on my long to-do list of personal family (laughs) history research to get to sometimes. So that can be helpful, certainly for recent generations, but really for everyone. The autosomal is a good starting place. I like to utilize that as far as is possible and then bring in Y-DNA on select lines as appropriate if you're brick-walled earlier on with one or just have a particular interest in that line, then adding Y-DNA to the mix can be a helpful research tool. So let's talk about what they call the big Y over at Family Tree DNA, and that's the one with the big price. (laughs) And of course, with (laughs) the new pricing structures recently, it's come down quite a bit, which is great. What are the advantages of the big Y test? How can it help you genealogically? Okay, so it's really a completely different type of test that looks at different regions of the Y chromosome than the STR tests do. And what the big Y test does is it looks at SNPs, single nucleotide polymorphisms, and it looks at hundreds of thousands of them. And SNPs are more stable than STRs are. So that provides some advantages for genealogy. So let's say that your grandfather 
if he were to have done STR testing, he might have a value of 26 at some particular STR, which is just counting the number of patterns repeated at that place. It's possible that your father could have had a mutation there and increased that count to 27. It's also possible that you could have had a back mutation and gone back to 26. Okay. Um, so, and so that is fairly likely to happen with some STRs, some more than others, but very unlikely to happen with SNPs. And so once a variation from the norm takes place, that typically just passes down generation to generation to generation. And so what happens with that in the big Y test is that creates branching on the haplotree. So if you have a certain SNP, that's a clue that you descend from a given ancestor. That ancestor could be 50 years ago or 5,000 years ago. But the more testers that go to big Y, the more SNPs are being defined and it's providing some really great clues for people. So if you don't have a good match at the STR level, then the big Y isn't necessarily going to help you genealogically, is it? No, no. It's possible you could have some really distant matches on the big Y that you didn't have at STR, but they're going to be too far back. They're not going to help with genealogy. Um, So you might want to take the test in faith, basically, that some others will come along that will match that might move up to the big Y test so you can do those comparisons. It's kind of a shot in the dark, isn't it? It can be, yes. We look at the YSTR results and those that display what tests other matches have taken. So you can know if you're at a lower level whether your matches have upgraded or not. But I certainly have had clients that have chosen to upgrade even in absence of other big Y testers just because they are interested in those deeper roots, those predictions, or they're hoping that other matches come along. And I have actually seen that take place. And I've certainly been on the other side of that where I have encouraged someone to upgrade because other people have already done so. If those other people hadn't already done so, my client wouldn't have upgraded either. So right. um, Somebody's got to go first. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. She's Gretchen Jorgensen. She's a DNA specialist with our friends at Legacy Tree Genealogist. Gretchen, Great stuff. Thanks so much for coming on and updating us on what's going on with Big Y and Y chromosome testing. Yeah, great to be here. And I'm excited to have on the director of the Family History Library in Salt Lake City, Utah, David Rencher. And David, it's been a while since we talked. We bumped into each other briefly at Roots Tech, but I am imagining that life has been a little different for the staff of the Family History Library. What's going on? A little different is uh, kind of an understatement there. So, yeah, we uh, closed on the 13th of March, and we have not reopened at this point. However, that hasn't slowed us down any internally. The staff has been working extremely hard, accomplishing a lot of good things. You will see a new library when we uh, are able to reopen, so it's going to be fun because we have expanded not only our offerings within the library and made changes, continue to make changes there, but we're certainly expanding out into the virtual realm as well. And so I think people are going to be extremely excited with what they see. Well, I'm excited about it, and it's one of my favorite places literally on the planet. (laughs) And and my thought is during this, you know, having not spoken to you, I'm thinking there's got to be a lot of people who are indexing and creating things online in huge numbers, unlike anything we've even seen before, because people just want to keep busy with this. 
Yeah, you know, we have a missionary workforce of over 400 missionaries that serve there. And of course, we've kept them busy while we've been closed. So a number of them have turned to indexing projects and content for the research wiki, which has been a huge help on a number of things that we wanted to accomplish with wiki content. So people obviously would see that online and the the efforts from all of that type of work. So we've also reached out into other church campus departments, helping to keep their staff fully engaged because some of those departments, their work had to be done in person on site, right? And then when they couldn't do it, they were looking for other ways to keep that workforce gainfully employed as well. So we've even had the benefit and help from some other people there that have just been able to do some terrific work for us. So it's been a real benefit, actually. So some of the staff has actually been able to access the facility and get in there and do some things. So we've had a very few number uh, of staff. It's mostly centered around our collections team. Last time I was on the show, we talked about the books yeah, uh, that we don't have access to. So we actually, during the closure to be completed by the end of June, we've added a significant number of bookshelves to the third floor and completely rearranged that. The uh, reference desk has been relocated on the third floor. We're replacing all of the flat table space. Many of those tables dated back to when the building opened in 1985. So you'll see all refreshed, new updated tables and chairs We are adding bookshelving to the British floor on B2. That will allow us to bring all of the British books out of high density back onto the shelves. We've made some progress on our rights, releasing books online. And so we've actually been releasing thousands of books that were previously not able to view online. And those are able to view now. So if you did check a book and you couldn't see it online, you may want to go back and see if it was one of the ones that we were able to release. So there's just been a lot of work going on with the collections team there behind the scenes to do that. We're remodeling, just taking care of some basic infrastructure stuff. We're remodeling the restrooms on the main floor. So that's been under construction. The jackhammers have been going. So, so when it's we good hear about, we were closed. When we hear about all these people who are bored during the pandemic, that obviously did not include anybody you work with. Uh, no, 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 no. <laughs> Actually, I've, I've gained a couple hours that I don't have to commute any longer. And so sure. uh, I think everybody's kind of in that mode as well. So I think under the closure, we actually accelerated the work, not lost time. I totally get that. And for people who aren't familiar with the Family History Library, it is the largest of its type in the world. It is operated by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and it's all tied together with FamilySearch.org. And so what's going on with that side of the ledger, David? Are, are we seeing uh, more indexing happening there? And what other things can people do during the shutdown time? So obviously we've got all of the offerings with Family Search. So you've got all of the mobile apps. We've seen an increase, obviously, in submissions to the Family Tree. We've seen an increase of people attaching sources to the Family Tree. Yes. We've seen an increase in people merging duplicates within the Family Tree. So all of that has been extremely positive. We've been doing some testing with new search strategies, new algorithms. We've done a number of things that really will make a difference to the way we do our research and the way we find people online. So the engineering team just has a number of different fronts that they work on, and it just continues to get better and better. Now, I I know last time I think we talked a little about what it was going to take, how long it was going to take to get everything that was in that big vault in the mountainside (laughs) online, and and the thought was it was going to take maybe five years. What's the progress with that? Um, So we've accelerated that progress as well. We are cautiously optimistic looking at sometime next year. 
that significantly accelerated of the things that we're allowed to digitize, you know, we're closing in on that gap as well. So we were down to our, our last 600,000 films, I think, when we last talked. <laughs> I think we've been able to cut that close to in half. So we're still uh, doing a lot of that. For people who are looking at our Family History Library catalog, if in the catalog you see a DGS number, but you still see the role of film icon, what it means is that the item has been digitized because it has a DGS number, but it is still in the process of waiting to be published. So if you go into the catalog and you see the film icon and you do not see a DGS number, then that item has not yet been digitized. Just a little tip for the day. Oh, that's a great tip. And there's been online consultations going on as well and chats, right? So we've started a whole effort with our Family History Library staff, which we are modeling right now. So you'll actually see a lot more information coming out about the research consultations. There are 20-minute consultations with the members of our reference staff. We're offering them both in English and in Spanish, and we will be able to make reservations online right now. That's through a wiki page, a wow. research wiki page. And then, of course, all of our touch points with advertising and that and marketing, you'll start to see more and more about that. So our staff is, is learning how to do these right now, and we've had quite a successful launch into this space, and the feedback is extremely positive, and we're beginning to get that kind of thing. So with indexing, David, are we seeing an increase of it over the last few months since the lockdown began? Absolutely. An increase in indexing. And we've been scrambling to put up more indexing projects to make more available. We also know that a number of those are new users. And so we've tried to put up a balanced approach of easy to difficult projects for people to do. And so indexing has certainly accelerated over this last 11 weeks. So, so you're not doing a lot of old German handwriting. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, me personally, no. Uh, I'm, I'm not the one to do old German handwriting or Polish. Isn't that funny, though, that when you work with something like that over time, you know, and you learn a word here, a word there, so that you can figure out what the record says, that your eyes begin to adjust after a few days of that sometimes? Have you oh, had that experience? Absolutely had that experience. But the beauty of it is we also have indexers who that's all they want to do, right? So I, uh, we had two indexers. These two ladies absolutely didn't want to do anything except 17th century Old English handwriting. Wow. And they, because they were so good at it, right? Sure. And so that's all they wanted to do, and they just made this huge contribution in, in, in helping us index that type of record, which was extremely difficult for others to, to index. So it's beautiful when people know what they're good at and take on the challenge of doing that. So if people want to index or be involved in one of these other projects, where do they go? They can just simply get on the FamilySearch website and go to the indexing page and sign up there. There's a tab there at the top that says indexing, and it tells you how to find a project, gives you an overview of the program. It's an easy way to start. We try to match everybody's skill set to something they're comfortable doing. He's David Rencher. He is the director of the Family History Library in Salt Lake City, Utah, connected, of course, with FamilySearch.org. And it sounds like some really good things are coming out of the pandemic as far as the work is concerned. Thanks so much, David. Appreciate it. All right. Very good to talk to you. All right. The Genetic Detective. It's on ABC every Tuesday night at 10 o'clock on the coast and 9 o'clock on, on the flyover country, as they call it. And Cece Moore is the star, and she's with me on the phone once again this week. Hi, Cece. How you doing? Hi. How are you? You know, I'm doing well. I'm loving your show. And I've got to tell you, I'm hearing from a lot of my peeps 
that they really love your show and they're learning a lot just from oh, seeing how you go news. about things. Yes, it is great news. And you got six episodes going on right now and we're up to number four already. I can't believe how quickly the season is flying by. Tell us what we're going to be seeing this week. This week is the April Tinsley case, which is a young girl that was kidnapped and murdered in Fort Wayne, Indiana. So a terrible, oh. terrible crime that had a huge impact on the Fort Wayne community for many years. The community was very afraid because this person was not caught. And then to make matters worse, he was taunting the police and the community by leaving messages that he was going to strike again. And wow. so he caused a lot of fear. Now, how far back does and this go, see? So April Tinsley had just turned eight years old, and it was 1988. Oh, wow. So this is a real yeah. cold case. That's incredible. Yes. And they had spent so much time trying to solve this case. It was hugely important to both the Fort Wayne Police Department and the community. And they had looked at hundreds of persons of interest in this case. One really interesting thing about it is that a witness thought that they saw a blue truck. And so the police department looked at every man that owned a blue truck in the area over many, many years. You know, some people are worried about genetic genealogy potentially pulling innocent people into investigations, but I don't think people realize what goes into many investigations. People get pulled into investigations for the smallest reasons, sure. including owning the wrong color car or having a license plate that starts with the wrong letter or number. And so in this case, there were actually over a thousand people that were looked at as persons of interest that all turned out to be innocent. Did yeah. you have a lot of key matches in this or just one or two? We didn't have any real close, strong matches in this case. However, we had quite a few third cousin matches enough that I was able to build four different genetic networks. If you have enough data to build two, three, four genetic networks, there's a very good chance of being able to really narrow it down to one immediate family. And that's what happened in this case. I was able to narrow it down to one family with three sons, but one of the sons was ruled out because he was no longer alive while the perpetrator was still taunting the police. So I could narrow it down to only two brothers. It was a fascinating genetic genealogy case, having these intersections and triangulations happen between the genetic networks. So one really notable thing about this case, in addition to the genetic genealogy that it took to get to the identification, this case was the very first case where the suspect was identified through investigative genetic genealogy and we got a conviction. So we talk a lot about that William Earl Talbot II was the first convicted, but that was the first convicted through a jury trial. This was the first case where we got a conviction of a suspect identified through investigative genetic genealogy because he confessed and pled guilty. Wow. And so he was the very first one that was fully adjudicated. So this was a really important case for that reason in addition to the obvious reason. Well, congratulations again. Thank you. Well, we look forward to seeing the episode coming up. It's The Genetic Detective with C.C. Moore. It's on ABC, 10 o'clock on the coast, Central Time and Mountain Time. It would be 9 o'clock Tuesday nights. Check it out. Thanks so much, C.C. We'll talk to you again next week. Thanks for having me again. All right, we are back for Ask Us Anything. And, uh, David, we have a question here from Tiffany 
in Plains, Georgia. Oh, Jimmy Carter's neck of the woods. And she says, my ancestors settled in Canada coming in from the UK, but there are no passenger lists and, of course, no naturalization because Canada was part of the UK. She wants to know how she finds out where her people were from in the UK. What do you think, Dave? Well, let's see. Having a quarter of my ancestry from Atlanta, Canada, I'm sure I can give her some suggestion. The best place, of course, to try to track that down is sometimes our ancestors inscribed where they came from on their gravestones. And it's very popular in the 19th century and early 20th century to have an epitaph on the gravestone that says, I am a native of blank. The other thing that's kind of useful are land records, but not in the contemporary idea of looking at grantor-grantee, looking at deeds. It's not like land that is sold between two people or two parties. This is land that you petition for from the Crown of England. So Crown land grants. And why these are important, that of course, you know, it tells you where your ancestor was living. It gives you their occupation. But oftentimes in the petition for the Crown land, it says, I, David Lambert, a native of the county of Tipperary in Ireland, arrived in this province in December 1816. So it forgoes not having a passenger list, and it forgoes having no record that may have ever recorded it elsewhere. This is true for one of my Irish ancestors, John Kelly. The petitions are the harder things to find, so you want to reach out to your provincial archives when they open back up, but also look at familysearch.org, but look under land records under that province. And when you're looking within the land records, look for something that has in the title crown land, crown land grants, crown land registers, crown land petitions. And these are where you're going to find potentially that clue to tell you where in the UK your ancestor came from. So in your example, David, you were saying County Tipperary in Ireland, would it ever give the actual village they came from? In some cases it does. If you're lucky, at least you get the county in which your ancestor came from. If they're making the petition themselves, there's not a form they filled out. So there's no rhyme or reason to how much or how little they may give, but it is a chance of finding where. And when my John Kelly course, is like trying to find John Kelly in Ireland. <laughs> it's about as easy as finding John Kelly in South Boston. The problem basically is I didn't know where. At least I know the county, but it's still not exact enough sure. to find church records, but it's a start. Of course, you can always use the fan method, right, to find family associates and neighbors, people surrounding them, maybe somebody with a more unique name, find out if you can locate where that person came from. And maybe that would be where your John Kelly would have come from. And this is the approach that I'm using for my Lamberts, who settled in Nova Scotia. The earliest land deed in 1793, there are two transactions where my third great-grandfather, John Lambert, is buying land along with Henry Furlong and David Sinnott. These are both names that show up in Waterford, Ireland. So did they travel with him? That whole fan approach. So look at witnesses on deeds. Look at witnesses in probates obviously witnesses and church records, and work outside the box. Look for the origins and the crown land grants and the gravestones of those people and track down their descendants and see if they have a clue. What a great response and what a great question. Thank you so much for it. And, of course, if you have a question for Ask Us Anything, you can email us at askusanything at extremegenes.com. David, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Always a pleasure, my friend. 
And that's our show for this week. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks once again to Gretchen Jorgensen for talking Why DNA today and to David Wrencher, the head of the Family History Library in Salt Lake City, Utah. Looks like some good things will come out of the pandemic as a result of all this mess. We'll talk to you again next week. Thanks for joining us. And remember, as far as everyone knows, we're a nice, normal family. This has been Extreme Genes. Share your family story by going to FamilySearch.org.